that we have, other sins we didn't even see. I say all of that to simply say, how do we live in that? How do we wait for perfection? How do we wait as people who are pursuing righteousness, but for whom it often feels slow and hard and fleeting? How do we do that without becoming discouraged? That's the question I want to talk about this morning. And in a minute, we're going to look at this text and see the answer and talk theologically about the answer and talk practically to our hearts about the answer. But first, I'm just going to give you the answer, but then bear with me because it's one of those things that we need to hear it, but then we also need to feel it. The answer is that we wait as beloved children of God. The way we wait for perfection and righteousness is that we wait as loved children of God. First, let me show you that in this text. So start in 1 John 2, 28. John says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So John is discussing the whole letter of 1 John is really this set of answers to this fundamental question of how do I know that I'm a Christian? What does it mean to really be a Christian? How do I have assurance, is the way that people talk about that, that I belong to Jesus? And he gives a couple of answers, and one of his answers is that we are growing in righteousness, that as we recognize that Jesus is righteous, we should be growing in righteousness to be like him. But there's two things we need to recognize about that answer. One is that he gives that answer within the context of us being children of God. So he starts by saying, and now little children, abide in him, meaning Jesus, abide in Christ. And then out of that, he says, as we're abiding, we're growing in righteousness. And we're going to come back to that. Notice that abide in him. That's one of the two commands actually in this text. But um, But the other thing to recognize is that even as we're doing that, one of the other signs John gave earlier in the letter is in 1 John 1, where he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So one of John's earlier evidences that we belong to Jesus is that growing awareness of our sin. And so John is setting up that tension for us. He says, you're children of God, children who on the one hand are growing in righteousness to be like Jesus and like God your Father, but on the other hand, children who are also growing in a sense in your awareness of sin and confessing it. That's what we talked about setting this up. And then he speaks into that, uh, starting in 3.1. He's sort of then saying, so what do we do with that tension? So first he says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. That's the second command in the text, to see what kind of love God has given us. So John speaks into the tension we feel, where we're growing in righteousness, but we also are still sinful. And he says the first thing we need to do is see the love that God has for us, this love that makes us children of God. We use the word adoption to talk about that, that God counts us as a part of his family. And then he describes waiting in that in verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. 
So he says we are waiting as children of God in that place where we're longing for perfection. That what we, we are children of God, what we will be has not yet appeared. So we're in that place of waiting. And then in that place of waiting, he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we are seeking to grow as we wait, even though what we will be has not yet appeared. Let me try to describe what John is talking about theologically. And I know that's a scary word, but look, when I say that, all I mean is that Christians through the ages have tried to use certain words and ideas to sum up what scripture teaches. And there's two words that, uh, that the church has used to, to try to describe this. So I'm going to tell you them, and then we're going to talk about how they relate to each other. But the two words are justification and sanctification. Justification and sanctification. So justification is describing this idea that when we first believe, now God has already been at work in us, right? Even as we come to faith in him, he's chosen us and called us and sought us and drawn us to himself. He's worked in us. But when we first believe, we repent, meaning we grieve and acknowledge our sin. We repent and we put our faith and trust in Jesus. And at that moment, scripture says we are justified. Now, that word justified, it has a narrow meaning in Scripture, which is sort of this image of a legal courtroom. We're justified in the way that a judge declares a verdict over somebody of not guilty. And so because Jesus suffered for our sins, God has declared over us that we are not guilty, that we are, in fact, righteous. So that's true in that narrow sense. And the word justified is sometimes used in the New Testament to stand in for all those other things that happen in that moment when we first believe. And so we talk about the fact that we are redeemed, for example, that we're set free from bondage and slavery to sin. We, we talk about the idea that we are united with Jesus Christ, that we're joined and connected to him. That's what the abide in me that we have here in this text is talking about, that, that he is in us by the Holy Spirit and we are in him. And we're adopted. That's another of the things that happens to us when we become um, justified, that in that moment we are made children of God and a part of his beloved family. All of that happens the moment you believe and is at 100% true then and stays true for us throughout our entire lives in Jesus Christ. So that's justification. And then on the other hand, there is sanctification, which is the way that we talk about the fact that as we are justified, so God continues to work in us in this process that helps us to become what we are in justification in our lived lives. So we are progressively becoming more like Jesus. God works in us to help us to grow in righteousness and holiness. And there's a couple things that we need to understand about sanctification. First is that sanctification, unlike justification, is a process. Justification is fully and completely applied to you the moment you become a Christian and stays that just 100% true of you. Sanctification is something that we grow in over time, which is why we're talking about waiting and longing for it to be finished. And sanctification is a process that we participate in and God works in us. So on the one hand, it is something that we are called to engage with. Unlike justification, right, we don't justify ourselves, but we are at times called in scripture to sanctify ourselves, meaning to seek to grow and pursue holiness and, um, and so it's not something, when we talk about waiting for perfection, we're not talking about waiting in the sense of just saying, oh, I'm just not going to do anything, right? I'm just going to chill here and God will work this in me. So it's something that we participate in, but it's also at the same time something that God is working in us. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul just very succinctly sums it up. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all God's energy that he powerfully works within me. 
And so it's something that even as we struggle and toil in, we recognize that it is God's power working in us that gives us hope of that growth, that will accomplish that growth, and he's the one that gets credit. And third, and this is really the key point from John 3, and the key point we're going to dwell on today is that that sanctification is motivated by and flows out of our justification. That the relationship of them is that we are justified and then our sanctification is motivated by and flows out of our justification. Which is to say, John, remember, says that one of the proofs of being in Jesus is that we're growing in righteousness, but then the command he gives is not, therefore, work hard at being righteous. Instead, the command in verse 1 is, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. See, behold God's love. That's what John says in response to our need to be righteous. And he says, hope in that love of God, hope that God has made you our children, his child. And then in verse 3, he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That the way we grow in that righteousness as we wait, the way we grow in righteousness is by beholding the love of God, by pressing into that justification. The Puritan Walter Marshall wrote this great little book on sanctification, and he says it like this. He says, your way to a holy practice is first to conquer and expel unbelieving thoughts by trusting confidently on Christ and persuading yourselves by faith that his righteousness, spirit, glory, and all his spiritual benefits are yours and that he dwells in you and you in him. And in the might of this confidence... You shall go forth in the performance of the law, and you will be strong against sin and Satan, and be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So the way you become sanctified is by recognizing the love of God and all the things that you have in Jesus Christ. So we are waiting as loved children of God. So with all of that said then, as we think about waiting, here's what I want to do with the rest of our time, is I just want to say some stuff to us that helps us see the reality of that. I just want to speak some truths to you about that love of God that are meant to especially speak to our hearts as we wait. And the first of those truths is that God delights in you. God delights in you. One of the problems that we can have, and I just, I want you to hear, it is so hard for Christians, because look, you've been around the church, you know, you hear words like grace, you hear words like God's love, we're all like, oh yeah, you know, we, we believe in that, but for so many people, those words get confused with certain lies that we believe about them, and one of those lies is what I think of as the lie of toleration, which is that God's love just means that he tolerates you. And I have heard preachers talk in those ways. Usually it's because they want to have a high view of sin, and we should have a high view of sin, but we should have an even higher view of God's love. And so they say things like, you know, like your sin just makes you ugly to God and he, he hates you, you know, and he, you know, he just can't, he can't tolerate you because of your sin. But in Jesus, God works so that he can put up with your sin and put up with you and bear to let you into his presence. That God's love is really just him tolerating you. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet speaks to God's people in exile. 
And the book of Isaiah has a high view of Israel's sin. It's enough that it causes them to be led away in captivity for 70 years. The prophet speaks of them as having blood on their hands and turning aside to idols. And in fact, one of the analogies he and other prophets use of the sin of God's people is of adultery. That God is a loving spouse who gives himself to his people fully and completely and they turn their back on him and chase after other lovers. And it's, but it's out of that imagery of adultery that Isaiah then speaks to these people in exile of God's restoration. And I want to read to you from Isaiah 62, right? Um, and so this is God, again, speaking to his people in exile for their sin, talking about how he's going to save them. And he says, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So how is that picturing the love of God? Even in the face of his people's unfaithfulness and adultery and all of that, it is pictured not just as, as love, right? Not, not as toleration, not even as love, but he's using the imagery of, of like, look, you guys know that I recently got engaged and this is more recent for me to walk through, but if you're married or have gone through that process of falling in love, you remember that like, early season of love, right? You know, the young lovers who just, you know, their hearts race when they're excited to see each other and they just want to stare at each other. It's that, that image of, I mean, he talks about that bridegroom rejoicing over the bride, right? It's that moment when that young couple, like finally the wedding day's arrived and the doors open and you get to watch the groom's face as he sees his bride and his eyes light up and his jaw drops. Isaiah's saying, that is what God feels about you as his people. That's the kind of delighted love that he has in you. Or let me give you, I'm going to do another one because, I, again, it's so easy for us to have that toleration. Zephaniah, another Old Testament prophet, right? And again, writing to God's people in exile about God's restoring them and how he feels about them in restoring them. And he says this in Zephaniah 3.17. He says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I'm a sucker for a good love song, and that's the language that Zephaniah uses to describe God's attitude for us, right? The Lord exults and rejoices over you so much that he has to sing of it because prose isn't enough, that he's writing power ballads about his love for you. That is the imagery that the prophet is using. And, and again, I've tried to say this, but I want to say it once more because of the way that that idea of God tolerating us comes. That is how God feels about us even in the midst of our sin. These pro prophets are speaking to Israel in their most broken place because of their sin, but they declare that kind of love of God. That is God's heart for you, even when you failed, even when you are struggling, even in those moments of waiting, when you really recognize that you're a lot worse than you used to think, that God delights in you. Second truth about God's love is that God pursues you. God pursues you and chases after you in his love. Another lie about the love of God is what I think of as the halfway lie, which is that God sort of 
loves us in the way that he's willing to like meet us halfway, but he really needs us to love him too in order for this thing to work and in order for him to, yeah, be okay with us. And I'm going to do something I rarely do, and I'm going to try to picture this for you um, using two chairs. This is not original to me, but here's the deal. I'm going to show you first um, what I think a lot of people imagine when they think about the story of Christianity and the good news of the gospel, um, and it's this. They think that in scripture, the story is this, and I'm going to be clear. This first illustration I have heard used to illustrate the gospel, even though I think it's wrong, okay? But they think that what happens is that God, right, God on his throne creates humanity to be in relationship with him, and so they're there face-to-face in the Garden of Eden, and that because of sin, humanity turns their back on God, and so in response to that sin and rebellion, God turns his back on humanity, and that's the state of things. Until finally, God sends Jesus, and what he does in Jesus is that he turns back towards humanity. He works so that he can turn back towards humanity, and then what he's doing is he's waiting on you to turn back around and enter into relationship with him. I've heard the gospel presented that way, but that's not how the story of scripture works. In the story of scripture, it is true, God creates us in this union and communion with him, and our first parents turn their back on him in rebellion and sin. But what does God do in Genesis 3? They sin, and God comes to the garden, and he seeks them out. And while there are consequences for their sin, he gives them this promise of a Messiah, Savior, that will come and crush the serpent's head. And and even as they're cast out of the garden, he makes clothes for them to wear to cover their shame. And then, you know, Cain and Abel, right? Cain kills Abel, turns his back on God, and what does God do? He comes and he searches out Cain. And while there are, again, consequences for Cain's sin, he gives him a mark to protect him. Um, and, you know, and, and, and declare his faithfulness to him. And, I mean, repeat it again. You get to, like, Genesis 11, and you see the people of the earth coming together to try to build a city in rebellion against God so that they themselves can climb to heaven and not fill the earth. And they're scattered because of it. But then Genesis 12, 1, God comes to this guy named Abram, who's just like a pagan nobody, right? Abram's not some, like, pious guy seeking after God. The first thing we learn about him is that God comes and calls him, and he says, I'll bless you and make you a blessing to the nations. And over and over in the story of Scripture, what we see is God's people turning from him, right? They turn aside in rebellion and idolatry and end up in captivity, and God sends judges to seek after them, and then he sends them kings, and those kings turn aside. But God comes to them in prophets and calls them back. And even as they go into exile, right, we see God chasing after them and making those declarations we just led. And so over and over, you have that story of God chasing after his sinful people as they turn their back on him. And then what happens in the New Testament isn't that finally God turns back to them. It's that God goes even farther than he had before. And that he says, okay, we're going to go even farther than this. So what's going to happen is I'm here on my throne and I'm actually going to come off of my throne and not just pursue you by getting in your face, but join you in Jesus. That's what we're celebrating in this season. That God comes to us as one of us and works so that not so that he can bear to turn back to us, but so that we can be turned back to him. That's the story of Scripture. It's a story of this great pursuit over and over of God, of his faithless people, seeking and saving them. And that is so important for us as we wait. Like we said, one of the great struggles of waiting for perfection is that it's so easy for us to become discouraged. To say, why aren't I better now? To say, Lord, I've failed again. To say, Lord, I thought I'd seen this real triumph, but I've fallen in this way. And part of our hope in God's love is that that's always been the story. 
and God has always chased after us. He's not going to stop even as it takes us our whole life to grow. It's not going to stop even as we recognize sins we hadn't seen before. God will keep chasing after us and identifying with us in Jesus even as we wait. So God delights in us and he pursues us. And one more truth about God's love is that God redefines us. So in John 3, 1 John 3, 2, he's talking about our waiting. He said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The key thing there is he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. One of the most essential things to recognize about the Christian life is that um, we always have this tension between our identity and our actions as people, right? We always, um, we have this sense of identity and then we do things and every other religion in the world says that our identity is defined by our actions, right? That a righteous person is someone who does righteous stuff enough that they become defined as a righteous person. And a bad person is someone who does enough bad stuff that they're then defined as a bad person. But in the gospel, what we are told is that instead, our identity is defined by Jesus. And that is the thing that shapes our actions. You are a child of God, John says, even though you have not yet become like Jesus. It's our identity that drives our actions. And so God defines who we are in his love. And that means that as we wait, we have to define ourselves by that definition that God gives us as well. Because it's easy, I think, for us as we wait to lose sight of the fact that God calls us his children, righteous, loved, and justified, and instead to be defined by our struggle or the things that we've done. I mean, here's what I mean. Uh, if, you, if you hang out at my house with my kids and I long enough, you're going to hear this story because they love this story and they should never have heard this story. But... As a teenager, I committed an act of vandalism. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and teens that are here do not do this, to be clear. But I committed an act of vandalism. But I remember the first time my kids heard this story, and I wasn't even thinking about it, but I looked over at them and they had these huge eyes. And one of them says, Daddy, you're a criminal. <laughs> As if, like, there was this whole new identity thing in play. And what was interesting was having to explain to them this, like, yes, I did this thing that was a crime. And while I thankfully didn't have to face legal consequences for it, I did have to face some other consequences for it that involved a lot of paint on a wall and things like that. Um, but that's not, that doesn't, that's not what defines me, right? Like, it's not that because I've done this thing, therefore I'm defined as a criminal, as I thought about that over the years, I've realized that that's actually how children think as a whole, though, right? It's so easy for them to move from, oh, like, you did this thing, that's the thing that defines you, right? To move from that action to that identity in that way, and that that's not just something that children do. Well, it's maybe a little more nuanced for adults. It is so easy for us to define ourselves by the things we struggle with, to say, well, I'm just a blank, and in that blank, we put the sin that we wrestle with, right? I'm just a addict, I'm just a drunk, I'm just a, you know, a failure, I'm just a liar, whatever that thing is, we easily let that define us. The thing that I try to communicate to my kids when I see them do it, and the thing I want to say to all of us when we do that, is that because of the work of Jesus, those are not the things that define you. That God in his love has already said 
who you are, and he has said that you are my beloved child. That's, that's what's happening here. He's saying to people that need to grow in righteousness, you are now children of God. That is the thing that defines you. Because of the work of Jesus, you are defined that way. And the thing is, that's actually what gives you the power to then struggle with sin. Because the problem with trying to motivate people to struggle with sin by just beating them over the head with guilt and letting that define them is that you're never going to escape it, right? If you're just a drunk, then you're never going to escape the cycle that you're caught in if that's the thing that defines who you are. You're just going to say, well, I guess I'm just that. But if you are a beloved child of God, if you are righteous in Christ, if you are a part of his family and his people, and that's the thing that defines you, then that will actually give you the strength as you struggle against sin to grow and become more like Jesus. So God delights in you, and God pursues you, and God redefines you in his love. That's the hope that I want each of us to feel this Advent season. We are waiting for perfection. We are waiting for Jesus to return, and when he returns, we will be as he is, but until then, we'll always be somewhere in between. And we are called to struggle and seek and fight in that season, but we are called to do it as children of God, to do it as those that he loves. That is what it means that he loves us. So let's have that hope in our hearts as we wait. Let me pray for us.